11. Hill, should extend from Panama to Cape Horn. Bolivar's enthusiasm on this point refused to be curbed at any cost at all events. At this period, it must be admitted that he did not take into full consideration the differences which climatic influences and the varying degrees of racial intermarriage had worked in the populations of the several provinces. Thus the ethics of the northern and equatorial countries had become widely different from those in the southern and temperate zones. Nevertheless, such was Bolivar's faith in the destiny of South America as a whole that he would have flung the entire mass together, and left it to work out its complicated will. San Martin, as the representative of what might be termed, in one sense, the European states of the River Plate and Chile, was keenly alive to the defects of this plan. It is certain that the two theories were discussed in the course of the momentous interview between San Martin and Bolivar, and it is equally certain that San Martin realized that, holding such divergent views from those of his colleague as he did, friction between the leaders would in the circumstances become inevitable. He determined, therefore, on a piece of self-sacrifice which has few rivals in history, at the moment when he had achieved his triumph, and when the inhabitants of three powerful new countries were waiting to salute him with a thunder of acclamation, he laid down his office, and buckled his sword, traveled quietly to Chile, and from there he crossed the Andes to Mendoza in a very different fashion to the one in which he had come on the occasion when he had commanded the Army of Liberation. From Mendoza he crossed the plains of Buenos Aires, and from there he took ship to Europe. It is generally supposed that he never again returned to his native country. This, however, was not the case, since he once again sailed back from France with the idea of watching the progress of the land he loved so dearly, perceiving, to his sorrow, that the country was temporarily lost in complete anarchy. He sailed to France again without having descended from the deck of the ship which had borne him out. The remaining embers of the war had now become localized, and it was obvious that Spain was at her last gasp. Bolivar came down with his armies from Quito to Peru to complete the task of the destruction of the Spanish garrisons. In 1824 the Battle of Junín was fought, which resulted in a striking victory for the South Americans. The Patriot forces on this occasion made a particularly gallant fight, and the brilliant cavalry charge made by Suarez is said to have been largely responsible for the victory. Bolivar then gave over the command of the army to General Sucre, who on December 9, 1824, fought the Battle of Ayacucho, completely defeating the Royalist forces. This proved to be the final action of the war, the last shred of Spanish authority had been torn from the continent. The last of the Spanish garrisons were now plowing their somber course back to Europe, and it was left to Spanish America to shape its own destiny. Chapter XVII Brazil, from colony to empire until the period of Napoleonic chaos which overwhelmed the two westernmost countries of Europe. The South American colonies of Spain and Portugal had continued their existence on similar lines. Both had been entirely subservient to the mother country. The laws which governed Brazil and the Spanish colonies were framed on the same model, and the disadvantages under which the colonists of either nation had labored from the start had been practically identical. With the upheaval which occurred at the beginning of the 19th century, a new order came into being, so far as the Spaniards and Portuguese were concerned. The parting of the ways was now marked, it island indeed, curious to notice that, while Spanish South America was strenuously engaged in transforming itself from the status of a royal colony to that of a group of independent republics, an operation was being carried out in Brazil, the effect of which was precisely the reverse. Brazil, in fact, in place of the neglect of centuries from which she had suffered, now underwent a sudden, dazzling, 
and altogether an expected shower of honors and distinctions. That this did not come about spontaneously affected the colony but little, the fact remained that she was destined in a remarkably short space of time to arise from a colony to a kingdom, and from a kingdom to an empire. The circumstances which led to this transformation were sufficiently dramatic in themselves. In order to preserve the thread of these rather complicated events, it is necessary to transfer the scene for a short while to Western Europe, where at the moment the armies of Napoleon were sweeping all before them. In 1807, when the French troops under Juno were on the eve of entering Lisbon, the Portuguese royal family embarked on a Portuguese man-of-war, and, escorted by a Portuguese fleet, sought the protection of the British fleet under Sir Sidney Smith. The move was effected only just in time, and the Prince Regent's confidential servant, who embarked just after the rest, left his departure so late that he was obliged to forsake some of his papers, his money, and even his hat, on the beach. Sir Sidney Smith convoyed the fleet as far as latitude 37 degrees 47 north, after which he left them under the protection of the Marlborough, the London, the Monarch, and the Bedford. Almost at the same time Sir Samuel Hood and General Beersford took possession of the island of Madeira, holding it in trust for Portugal. The royal party landed at Bahia on January 21, 1808. So enthusiastic was their reception that they remained in the town for a month. While at Bahia the regent gave promise of his future goodwill and liberality by promulgating a carta dated January 28, by which he opened the ports of Brazil to general commerce, levying on imports only a moderate duty, and permitting exports of all articles under any flag, with the exception of one or two articles which still remained royal monopolies. The departure of the royal family from Bahia was rendered necessary by strategic considerations, for, owing to its peculiar situation, the town could easily have been cut off from the rest of the mainland by hostile forces. The royal party therefore sailed south, and arrived in Rio de Janeiro on March 7. The joy in the port at the arrival of the regent and his party manifested itself in an excitement approaching delirium on the part of the officials and populace. The mountains and the waters of the bay were illuminated night after night with Bengal fires, rockets, and similar fireworks and every possible demonstration of joy known to the colonists was continued and broken for nine days. In the meanwhile the inhabitants were preparing the beautiful site of the town for its promotion as a capital city of a kingdom and the residence of a king. Indeed, in material advantages Brazil benefited almost immediately from the arrival of the Portuguese royal family. In the first place, as has already been explained, on January 28, 1808, the Prince Regent abolished the old exclusive system, and opened the ports of Brazil. A local writer, referring with enthusiasm to this, said the edict ought to be written in letters of gold. New desires, new habits, and new objects, were now introduced, and came crowding one after the other in haste into the wonderful tropical regions of the Bay of Rio de Janeiro. Printing was legalized with the arrival of the Prince Regent, who brought over with him his library, and this, in 1814 was thrown open to the public. The progress of science went hand in hand with that of the rest, and in 1811 vaccination was introduced. The pleasant arts were not left out in the cold, since, in 1813, the first regular theater was opened. In 1814 the French were invited to come over as residents, and they accepted in numbers. The old Criollo families now mustered about the royal representatives of Portugal, and rubbed shoulders with the nobility, who had come out in attendance taking no little pride in the contact, 
and desirous only of exhibiting to the utmost possible extent the depth of their loyalty. The character of the regent was such as to warrant the fervent loyalty displayed by his American subjects. Although set free by the mental disease of Queen Francisca Isabel, his mother, to the exercise of almost despotic authority from his earliest years, he had developed very few of the vices usually resulting from such lack of control and training. He is described as having been mild and just in temper, and of comparatively pure moral character. He was, however, called to the exercise of authority in troubled times, and had not the balance which makes the perfect statesman, Tishwavii. The nearest trouble was always the greatest, and the courtier at hand, able to gain the royal ear, had far more chance of success with him than the one who proffered his request by letter. Schwau found it difficult to refuse, disagreeable to inquire, and laborious to discuss. He was, in fact, an amiable man, but not a strong one. Schwau used the best measures at his command for the prosperity of his adopted kingdom, and he carried out reforms as far as he could or dared. Free trade was completely established, foreign settlers were invited, and artisans and mechanics encouraged in every way. English mechanics and shipwrights, Swedish iron founders, German engineers, and French artists and manufacturers, crowded to this new field of action, so suddenly opened up. In the meanwhile schools and hospitals were founded throughout the country, and the newcomers, consequent on unrestricted trading, was watched and regulated. Inspectors of ports and customs were appointed to prevent fraud, Rio was made a bishopric, and the ecclesiastical establishments of the country were carefully regulated, while many new tribunals were established. The vast increase of population and trade caused a corresponding increase in the buildings of the central and southern cities, more especially in those of the capital. New streets and squares and magnificent country houses rose up on all sides while the presence of a brilliant court necessarily altered many of the habits of the people. The fashions of Europe were introduced, and the empire gained a breadth of outlook that no mere colony of the period could ever possess. The introduction of the court brought to Brazil a new life and activity, new luxuries, increased and increasing trade, a vigorous and growing population, fresh public and private undertakings, and all the vigor of a rising community. Rio de Janeiro was now the headquarters, not only of Brazil, but of the whole Portuguese empire. The papal nuncio had taken up his residence at the spot, Lord Strangford, the British ambassador, and other diplomatic representatives of the various European countries, had arrived, while Sir Sidney Smith hovered about as a naval guardian angel. Rio, in fact, opened its astonished eyes to a world of fashion and to functions such as it had never known, as could scarcely fail to prove the case in the circumstances. It was not long before jealousies arose between the Portuguese and the colonists, but it was some time before these appeared on the surface, and in the first place the atmosphere of feasting and rejoicing dissipated all other considerations. One of the effects of the advent of the royal party in Brazil may easily be conceived. The court had always been somewhat prodigal of its orders and decorations. The appetite in the peninsula for these insignia had always been sufficiently keen. Among the cruder Brazilians the greed for any distinction of the sort became quite overwhelming. The most popular Portuguese order has always been and remained so even until the recent ending of the monarchy that of Cristo, and the effective state dress of this order, the long white robe with the great cross, has always had a wide appeal. In Rio de Janeiro during this period this was only one of the orders which were scattered broadcast, and which, after a short while, could be obtained at an increasingly cheap rate. Eventually every tradesman in Rio was wont to appear at the official gatherings, and, 
indeed, at the others as well, with his breast covered with a blaze of orders, all of which had been paid for, if not in actual cash, in goods delivered. The tremendous enthusiasm of the colonists bade fair to add an element of pure farce to the situation. At this period, moreover, various Negro battalions were raised, and it is noted by travelers that the black faces of the Negro officers were wont to mingle with those of the courtiers at royal functions a very strange and new situation for those, many of whose relatives were undoubtedly slaves in the same country, but in return for these advantages a bill and a heavy bill at that mounted up steadily, as a colony Brazil had been governed simply and inexpensively, after a while the colonists found that a queen, a regent, and a court, were expensive luxuries, in addition to the royal family there came over from Portugal more than 20.000 nobles, knights, and gentry, each expecting to be supported out of the revenues of the colony in the same state and circumstance as had been his own in Europe, in order to provide for these hosts of dependents, offices and places were created, and endowed with the most liberal salaries, on the arrival of the court there were already four ministers, four offices, and four staffs of officials in existence, these were continued, and to them were added a supreme court of law and equity, a board for the simultaneous management of the affairs and property of the church and of the military orders, with the power of suspending laws, a secondary court of appeal, but still a superior court to those of Brazil, a general board of police, a court of exchequer and the treasury, a mint, with a large staff of officials, a bank, a royal printing office, large mills and factories for the manufacture of arms and ammunition, and a supreme military court. These new posts and offices were filled throughout by European officials, and the expenses of the court itself, added to them, made up a burden which the new trade and increased population failed to compensate. In order to meet the cost of these many new appointments the government had imposed new taxes and duties, tobacco, cotton, sugar, hides, and other exports, were taxed, and 10%, was levied on house rent, on the sale of real property, and harbor dues, all this, however, was insufficient, and as a last resort the expedient of tampering with the currency was tried, dollars were sent into circulation at 20%, above their commercial value, money was borrowed from the bank, which was in close connection with the mint, and taxes were mortgaged in advance, while even the royal regalia was pledged as security. Notes were issued far beyond the amount of cash available for redemption, and a few years later the bank, its affairs brought to irremediable confusion, stopped payment. While these things were occurring, public discontent was growing, and in order to divert the attention of the populace from internal troubles, a war was determined on. French Guiana was near, and provided an admirable object for the purpose. In 1809, when France was fully engaged in European struggles, Guiana was attacked and captured with little trouble. The colony capitulated, and remained Brazilian for six years. When the Treaty of Vienna restored it to French rule, the conquest was of great indirect value to Brazil, in that it led to the introduction and free cultivation of agricultural products which had either been non-existent in Brazil up to that time, or extirpated by the crippling policy which Portugal pursued towards her colonies. Cinnamon, for instance, had hitherto been destroyed wherever found in Brazil, being regarded as a monopoly of the East Indies. The easy victory over Guiana induced the regent to make attacks on the Spanish colonies to the south and west of Brazil. Here, however willing the colonists were to shake off their subjection to Spain, they by no means desired to become subject to Brazil. It was just at this period that the War of Independence was raging. 
and the Spanish colonies were forming themselves into a republics. Schwab, fearing republicanism more than he hated Spain, Adilio, the Spanish governor of the Plate districts, with money and men in his attacks on the insurgents, Ilio was defeated, and the new republicans made a hostile entry into Rio Grande and Sao Paulo. The regent, fearing the result of this incursion, sent 5.000 Portuguese troops with a contingent of Brazilians to drive the enemy over the southern frontier. In this the Brazilian force was entirely successful, and the evacuation of Montevideo and occupation of Misiones were followed by the chasing of the Uruguayan patriot Artigas across the Uruguay River. In spite of popular and successful war, the Brazilians refused to be entirely contented, and Schwau had some reason to fear their discontent since Brazilian money supported the government and court, and ruin would necessarily follow the withdrawal of this. In order to meet all objections Schwau determined to make Brazil his kingdom. On December 16, 1815, a decree was issued declaring that from the date of its publication the state of Brazil should be elevated to the dignity of a kingdom, and henceforth called the Kingdom of Brazil, and should form with those in Europe the United Kingdom of Portugal, Algarves, and Brazil. Immediately after this event the Queen, Dona Maria, died at Rio, and the Prince Regent delayed the ceremony of his succession until the expiration of a year of mourning. The arms of the new king consisted of an armillary sphere of gold, in field azure, and in a scutcheon containing the quinas of Portugal and the seven castles of Algarves. The sphere was surmounted by the royal crown. On November 5, 1817, a vessel brought out the Archduchess Leopoldna, daughter of the Emperor Francis I of Austria who had been married by proxy to Dom Pedro, the son of Schwavii. On February 6, 1818, Schwavii was formally crowned at Rio, a ceremony which was emphasized by bursts of music, peals of bells, explosions of artillery, deafening shouts, of discharges of fireworks, and such a universal display of extravagant joy that, as my worthy author, Goncabs dos Santos says, it would require the pencil of Zuxis and the odes of Pinder to describe, and if anything on earth could be compared to the joys of heaven, it was that moment. The following year Princess Dona Maria de Gloria was born, a circumstance which rejoiced the loyal colonists not a little. Nevertheless, in the remoter regions of the enormous colony of Brazil, where the influence of these joyous events had been less felt, all was not so tranquil. In Pernambuco and Bahia local jealousies had fermented, the revolutions had been put down with a firm hand, and the leaders of the movements executed. This severity was much resented, both at the time and subsequently, and these provinces, in consequence, remained in a state of suppressed irritation. In 1820 some territory was annexed in the south, when, Uruguay being convulsed by civil war, the troops of Brazil occupied Tequerambo and the Arroyo Grande. After a while it became evident that Prince Pedro had gained more popularity than the king. The conservative methods of Schwavii were in the end responsible for protests on the part of the populace, and the king at length was obliged to give way, and to promise more liberal constitutions than he had endeavored to uphold. Dom Pedro swore in his father's name to respect these constitutions, and his example was followed by his brother, Dom Miguel. The enthusiasm which followed the concession was tumultuous and the king himself found it necessary to come from his country seat, Boavista. When he arrived at the capital his horses were taken from his carriage, and it was dragged to the palace by the people. Fireworks and illuminations followed, and a gala performance at the opera for the succeeding night was ordered, but King Schwavii was unable to attend. 
the proceedings had really been adopted against the grain in his case, and thus, when the curtains in the royal box were drawn apart, it was seen to be occupied by the pictures of the king and queen instead of by royalty in the flesh, but these pictures were received with the same enthusiasm and as hearty plaudits as though they had been royal humanity itself. While all this was happening in Brazil, the French had been finally driven out from Portugal, and King Schwalvi, determined to return once more to his native country, on April 24th he sailed with the royal family, leaving his son, Dom Pedro, as governor of Brazil, only a day or two before a disturbance had broken out in the capital, when the electors assembled, they were wantonly attacked by the Portuguese soldiery, and about 30 of them were slain, the majority in cold blood. The atrocity would have doubtlessly been more serious had not the popular Dom Pedro interfered. With the departure of the king from Brazil it was inevitable that complications should ensue. Having once enjoyed the status of a kingdom, and having been granted those privileges which had so benefited the country during the past few years, it was only natural that Brazil should resent any attempt to place her once again in the neglected situation from which she had been rescued, it seemed, nevertheless as though the policy of Portugal would now be directed towards this end. It was at this juncture that the influence of Prince Pedro began to be felt. Prince Pedro possessed a personality essentially capable of commanding, his talents, moreover, were varied. He was a good horseman, a keen sportsman, and was addicted to music and many of the politer arts. The part he had to play was undoubtedly a difficult one. His sentiments were intensely Brazilian, at the same time. In the letters he wrote to the court of Portugal he stated distinctly that the mother country alone possessed his loyalty, as was only just, and that he would make no move whatever that would prejudice the interests of Portugal. He even went the length of lamenting his presence in the faraway land he governed, and swore that he longed for the day when he might return and sit upon the steps of his father's throne. In the meanwhile the jealousies between the Portuguese and Brazilians increased rapidly the bitterness being more especially evident in the soldiery of the respective lands. Kim Shuao himself had behaved with little consideration ere his departure. One of his last acts in Brazil had been to promise the soldiery of that country double pay. Yet, though he had left the promise behind him, he had left no means whatever to carry it out, and thus disturbances arose in many places. On December 9, 1821, the Brigdom Sebastião arrived bearing a decree to institute a provisional government, which should again reduce the country to the condition of a province, and another which ordered the immediate return to Portugal of the young prince regent. A real crisis now arose. The Brazilians, devoted to Dom Pedro, implored him to remain. The Portuguese garrison spoke of removing him on a homeward bound ship by force. The whole city was agog, and the excitement at fever heat. In the midst of the turmoil the Brazilian troops surrounded the Portuguese, and, after obtaining a great strategic advantage, ordered them to march on board the vessels of the fleet bound for Lisbon. The Portuguese were inclined to resist, when Dom Pedro himself appeared in their midst and ordered their commanders specifically to embark the next day and to sail for Portugal. He had now decided on his attitude, and was determined that his orders should be obeyed. To show that he was in earnest he even took a match in his hand and lit it, and swore that, did the Portuguese troops refuse, he would be the first man to fire a cannon at them. This ended the matter, and the next day the ship sailed and carried away the Portuguese garrison. On May 14, 1822, a deputation from the Rio Chamber of Deputies approached Prince Pedro and persuaded him to assume the title of Constitutional Prince Regent and Perpetual Defender of Brazil, Portugal, for its part, 
was now bitterly opposed to Brazil and to the Brazilians. Decrees were enacted towards the suppression of the independence of the great colony. One of these ran to the effect that Prince Pedro was to return to Europe within four months, and that any of the military who obeyed his orders, unless by compulsion, were to be deemed traitors to Portugal. During all this time fresh troops were arriving to reinforce the garrison at Bahia, which had remained royalist. The patriots, for their part, had collected strong forces and hemmed the royalists in Bahia to such an extent that they could only retain communication by sea. Matters grew more and more strained every day, for the mother country sought to put an end to the virtual supremacy of its great colony, while Brazil was utterly opposed to Portuguese rule. When Prince Pedro was ordered to return to Portugal, in order to complete his education, the Brazilians, and especially the provincial government of Sao Paulo, begged him to disobey and remain in Brazil. The soldiers threatened to mutiny if he went, and the people entreated him not to go, while every proof of his popularity was added cause for exasperation on the part of the home government, rendering his situation more dangerous. If Dom Pedro went to Portugal, said the Brazilians, they must choose between an anarchical republic and the old state of dependence on Portugal. In the matter of Sao Paulo and the requests of its citizens, the brothers Andrada were most prominent and they obtained a promise from the prince that he would not go. Together with the Andradas he toured the states of Minas and Sao Paulo on a mission of pacification, but the people of the country felt that the present state of affairs could not continue, and in his absence it was determined to make him the ruler of the country, and he was declared defender of the empire. On September 7, 1822, he received a bundle of dispatches from Portugal, and his staff watched while he read letter after letter. There was one which he read two or three times, and then destroyed. What its contents were was never known, but after pondering and a few minutes of thought, Pedro raised his hand and spoke his decision, independence or death. There was no doubt that he had carried out the wishes of his father, and probably the letter which he destroyed contained Schwab's written directions. Some idea of this seems to have been general among the Brazilians, for both they and the Portuguese soldiers in Brazil always spoke of Schwab with affection and regarded him rather as a prisoner of the Cortes of Lisbon than as King of Portugal. The Brazilians determined that the last doubt concerning the situation should be dissipated, and on October 12, 1822, Dom Pedro, who was at Piringa, was made constitutional emperor of Brazil, and all relation and connection with Portugal was severed. Dom Pedro had all this time kept up a correspondence with his father, King Schwab, and in one of these letters he wrote, They wish and they say they wish, to proclaim me emperor, I protest to your majesty that I will not be perjured, that I will never be false to you, and if they commit that folly, it will not be till after they have cut me to pieces me and all the Portuguese a solemn oath, which I here have written with my blood in the following words, I swear to be always faithful to your majesty, to the Portuguese nation, and constitution, these latter words were apparently actually written in his blood, and the epistle is certainly a proof of the complicated state of affairs and of the strange influences which were at work. Open warfare now broke out between Brazil and Portugal, that Bahia the Portuguese, although their garrison was hemmed in were masters of the sea. The Brazilians determined to make a bold bid for the control of the waves, and to this end sent an invitation to a Lord Cochrane, who had just freed the Pacific Ocean from the Spanish fleet, and was at the time in Chile. An invitation of that kind was never refused by Cochrane. In March, 1823, he arrived and took command of the new Brazilian fleet, which was considerably inferior to that of Portugal. 
he sailed immediately for Bahia, but found his crews in no very anxious mood to fight their compatriots. A few skirmishes ensued, and the Portuguese fleet took refuge under the guns of the land forces. On the same day the Brazilians entered the city and took possession of it. The Portuguese fleet now sailed to the north, and was pursued by Lord Cochrane beyond the equator. He saw to it that their voyage was an eventful one, for he captured more than one half of their transports, and completely dispersed the remainder. Cochrane then returned to Brazil, and was instrumental in releasing the north of that country from the remaining foreign forces. On December 1, 1823, Dom Pedro was formally crowned. The ceremony was dramatic, and crowns and wreaths of laurels were showered down upon the hero of the nation, while patriotic airs were thundered out with tremendous enthusiasm. Three years later August 29, 1825 Pedro was acknowledged as Emperor of Brazil by the mother country, after the last Portuguese troops in the country had been withdrawn. Chapter XIX The Empire of Brazil Portuguese acquiescence in Dom Pedro's sovereignty was brought about largely by the instrumentality of Lord Cochrane who, after harrying the deported garrison of Bahia went on its voyage to Europe, brought about the capitulation of Maranhão and Pará, acting in concert with Grenfell, another ocean-free lance, second only to Cochrane in daring and versatility. In Montevideo the general commanding the Portuguese garrison declared for independence, and left the soldiers to make their own choice, whereupon they followed the remainder of the Portuguese troops to Europe, Uruguay, left to its own choice retained its allegiance to Brazil until Ortigas, a famous leader and partisan of liberty, stirred up the people. The Brazilian troops entered Montevideo on January 20, 1817, and the emperor sent his picture to the Cabildo Hall, an act which brought about the appearance of a most extraordinary document, drawn up by the officials of the town. When the portrait appeared they announced that a mixed sensation of trembling and delight seized us, as if we were in the presence of the Lord. Injustice to the inhabitants of Montevideo in general, it must be said that this fulsome and despicable effusion was the work of only a few, and was hostile to the sentiments of, and strenuously condemned by, the general public. The first Brazilian assembly, as soon as convoked, set to a work to frame its first constitution, a matter which was found extremely difficult. The fact that Brazil had, 